Most of you will remember that we are still considering the words that are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 14, the 14th verse in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, we must remember as we come back to consider this statement that its main function and purpose is to supply us with an additional reason or grounds for our assurance of salvation. That's the big theme in the whole of this chapter. The Apostle wants us to realize that if we are justified by faith, well then, our salvation is assured. It is final, it is certain. And he's giving us various reasons for that. And here he introduces this great reason, namely that we are sons of God. Now we've already considered what that means, and we are dealing at the moment with this. How may we know that we are sons of God? That's the obvious practical question, isn't it? If the basis of my assurance is that I am a child, a son of God... Well, then, uh, what I should want to know, above everything else, is whether I am truly a child or a son of God. And we see that the Apostle here gives us, at any rate, three reasons, if not four, whereby we may know of a surety that we are children of God. And the first is that we be led by the Spirit of God. We have seen already something of the way in which the Spirit leads us. We have seen that he does so by acting upon the mind, upon the heart, and upon the will. That is the way in which he leads us. We've been emphasizing that he doesn't drive us. And indeed, as we were singing the last hymn, I felt I should add another negative. He doesn't follow us either. I mean by that that um, we are not to go ahead of him and rush along, and the spirit following, as it were, as we were tending to do with the organ as we sang that last hymn. Pumping the expression is the, what I heard an adjudicator once say about that sort of singing. I found it very difficult to keep up uh, with some of my friends. I'm on the right here somewhere. I don't know where. I mustn't be too particular. But uh, I found it very difficult. I was losing my breath as they rushed the third and the fourth verses. However... Remember that you are not to go ahead of the Spirit. You are to be led by the Spirit. They are the sons of God who are led by the Spirit of God. It's as important we shouldn't be ahead as that we shouldn't be too far behind. Very well. Now then, there is one other point which is more or less general, which I think we've got to make before we can come to our particulars. And it is this. You noticed, as I read those two portions of Scripture at the beginning, that we were told some interesting things there about the leading of the Spirit. Now, I want to concentrate on one of them in particular, because there is an expression used in both of those passages which are most illuminating from the standpoint of this whole matter of our being led by the Spirit because we are the sons or the children of God. Now, the first was in the epistle to the Galatians in chapter 5 and in verse 17, where he says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, 
and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. Now, this is obviously a, a passage here which uh, has a very direct bearing on what we are considering. You see, he's concerned about their practical conduct and behavior, and he says, This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we live in the spirit, he says uh, later on, let us also walk in the spirit. You see, it's the same idea all along. And in the 18th verse, if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. And of course, if you're a child of God, you're not under the law. We've been seeing that at great length as we've been studying this epistle to the Romans in chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8. Well, now, here he's really saying the whole thing again, except that he introduces this interesting expression. He says that the Holy Spirit is lusting within us against the flesh. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, yes, but the Spirit also lusts against the flesh. And the term lust means a, a strong desire. It's a very strong influence again. The desire of the Spirit, in other words, is that we be saved from the influence of the flesh. And it is because of that that he leads us and directs us. But let us look also at that other extraordinary statement which is there in the fourth chapter of the epistle of James, in the fifth verse. Now, you notice that it read like this in this authorized version. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, it's generally agreed that this really is not a good translation here in this authorized version. You see, it puts it like that. Uh, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. But that really is not a right translation. Now, the revised version, you will find, I think, puts it like this. Doth the spirit which he made to dwell in us long unto envy? That's better, but there's still better than that. For you will find in the margin of the revised version, and indeed in some uh, copies of the authorized version, you will find uh, other translations uh, suggested in the margin. Now, here's one of them. The spirit which he made to dwell in us, he yearneth for even unto jealous envy. You see, the spirit which he, God, made to dwell in us, he, God, yearneth for even unto jealous envy. But the best translation surely is this one. The spirit which he, God, made to dwell in us, yearneth for us even unto jealous envy. Now, it's generally agreed that that is the best and the most accurate translation at this particular point. So we read our verse, Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit which he made to dwell in us yearneth for us even unto jealous envy. Now that's the most important and the most wonderful statement, a most encouraging and the most comforting statement. What it says is this, that the Holy Spirit, 
whom God has caused to dwell in us who are Christians. It's only referring to Christians, not to anybody else. We, of course, who've gone through this epistle to the Romans, as far as we've gone, know that perfectly well. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. But we have the Spirit of Christ. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Well, that's our position. So God has caused his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And what we are told is that the Holy Spirit, who thus dwells in us, is yearning for us. Yearning for what? Well, yearning for our holiness. Yearning that we may be worthy of our high calling. Yearning that we may be truly children of God and rejoicing in that fact. The Spirit, we are told, yearns for us. And this is the strong expression he uses, that he yearns for us even unto a kind of jealous envying. You see, it's an illustration. As uh, any parent worthy of the name is jealous for the well-being and the reputation and so on of the child. Or as uh, a lover is jealous for the well-being and the reputation of the object of his or her love. So the Holy Spirit is concerned about us. Almost to the extent of having a kind of jealous envy for us. Now don't be put off by the word jealous. You remember we are told in the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments, that God says, I am a jealous God. Well, it's the same sort of sense that we've got here. It's a strong expression to remind us of the greatness of the concern, and indeed of the exclusive element in the concern for us, so that we can think of ourselves in that way. We are here as Christian people. We have been redeemed from sin, from the law, from death. God has put his spirit in us. Yes, but as we have seen, it is still true to say of us that the body is dead because of sin. And we have seen that this remaining sin that tends to dwell in the mortal body causes a conflict. As it's put there in Galatians 5, 17, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. This element of the flesh that's still left in us, that is militating against our highest interests. But thank God, the Holy Spirit is militating on the other side. If it's true to say that the flesh is trying to get hold of us, as it were, and the devil using the flesh to do so, it is equally true to say, and more so, that the Holy Spirit is on the other side with this jealous envy, rescuing us and delivering us from the clutches and the nefarious influences of the flesh, especially as used by the devil. Well, now, this is a very important part, of course, of this whole matter of our being led by the Spirit of God. He is in us. That's his object. He is yearning for our full, final emancipation from sin in every shape and form and our ultimate glorification. And in order to that end, he leads us on. That's the thing that we've got to grasp. And he does so, obviously, if he is yearning with a jealous envy, he does so in every conceivable manner in order to bring us to this required goal. So he operates, as I say, upon the mind, upon the heart, and upon the spirit. So we can say that the Christian, as a son of God, is one who therefore is yielding himself to this yearning of the Holy Spirit on his behalf, 
that he may arrive at that ultimate state of complete salvation and ultimate glorification. Now then, what exactly does this lead to? Or put the question the other way around. How may I know in practice, therefore, whether I am a child of God, a son of God? Well, I've taken the trouble to expand those two passages because they will lead us, I think, directly to the practical answers to that question. Here's our question. How may we know now in this service whether we are children of God? It's the most important thing we can ever know. How do we know it? Well, if I'm a child of God, the Spirit is yearning for me with a jealous envy. And because of that, he is leading me and directing me and working in me. How do I know whether that is happening in me? Well, I'm going to suggest to you some practical tests. And they're very practical. You see, the apostle starts with these practical tests. Before he comes to what I feel that's going to follow, that I cry, Abba, Father. Before, he starts with something very practical. I am led by the Spirit. Well, how do I know that I'm led by the Spirit? Well, here are some of the answers. If I am led by the Spirit, that determines my general and my whole outlook upon life. Now, that is something which surely needs no demonstration. The apostle says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, God hath not uh, given us the spirit that is of the world. We have not received the spirit that is of the world, but the spirit, he says, that is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Well, look at it like this. If we are led by the Spirit of God, well then, we have got an essentially spiritual outlook upon life. That is the first and the big thing. The first thing that differentiates the Christian from the non-Christian is this spiritual outlook. The other man has what Paul has already called the carnal mind, you remember. The carnal mind, he says, is enmity against God. That's the seventh verse in this chapter. Well, the Christian hasn't got that. He's got a spiritual outlook. What does that mean? Well, you can bring it, you can break it up, and it's important we should do so. He's a man who's got a taste for spiritual things. What do you mean by that, says somebody? Well, I'll put it as simply as this. He likes a meeting like this that you're in at this moment. It is perfectly certain that the typical men of the world, if you were brought into this meeting, would find it extremely dull, uninteresting, and boring. He wouldn't understand it. He wouldn't know what it's all about. Why not? Well, because the Spirit of God is not in him. He can't help himself. He can't help himself. You see, it's no use asking a blind man to admire a scenery. He can't see it. Now, the man who's not spiritual, he has no spiritual faculty. And he wouldn't enjoy a meeting like this. He's not interested in the exposition of the Scripture and understanding the Scripture because the whole thing means nothing to him at all. But on the other hand, if we've got an interest in these things, if we really do enjoy this sort of thing, to me it seems to be absolute proof that we are spiritually minded. I know that there is a danger, perhaps. It's not as great a danger now as it was say, 50 years ago. There is the danger that a man may have a purely intellectual interest in these things. I don't think that 
is a very common thing today. Such people have dropped off and they're applying that sort of interest to other matters today. But you've always got to bear it in mind so it's not our only test. So I add another test, love of the brethren. That means this, that you delight in the company of, of uh, spiritually minded people. That you like the society and the fellowship of Christian people so that you can talk to them about these particular matters. In other words, the great thing about the man who has the Spirit of God in him and who is led by the Spirit is that he's a man who is concerned about the things of the Spirit. He's interested in his soul. He's interested in the destiny of his soul. In other words, he realizes that the most important things in this life are not the things which we see, but the things which we do not see. The Apostle puts that, you remember, in 2 Corinthians 4.18. The things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, this man, this man who's got the Spirit in him, the child of God, he really now can say quite honestly that it is this hidden, unseen part of himself and of his life in this world which is to him the more important. There was a time when it was the others that interested him. All the things that he could see and handle, they were the great things. And he couldn't stand spending an evening with himself and his own soul and spirit and examining. No, no, that was terrible. But now there's a great change. It is this inner man that counts, not the outward man. So he can say even this, that, though, that the inner man is renewed day by day, though the outward man is perishing day by day. In other words, I'll put it like this. If you can say that you have come to regard your life in this world as a kind of pilgrimage, and that more and more as you live, you are looking at your life in this world as but a pilgrimage, as but a journey, something temporary through which you're passing, and that you've got an increasing consciousness within you, that you belong to another realm, which is the real realm. Well, then you need have no doubt at all but that you are a child of God. Yes, says Paul to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven. That's it. Or again, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, though our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, this is, that's how the Christian thinks. Now, I don't want to be unfair in the application. I'm putting it in a very general form. I'm not asking whether you spend the whole of your time in thinking about that, but I am asking this. Is, is it true to serve you increasingly that you regard yourself more and more in a spiritual manner, that you are becoming increasingly detached from this world, and that it is that realm to which you're going that becomes increasingly important for you. If you can say that, my dear friend, you need have no doubt at all. You are a child of God. Nobody else can say that. It is one of the hallmarks of the true Christian. But there it is, I put it in general. But let me suggest another test, a second one. The man who is led by the Spirit of God, by definition, is a man who desires to live to God's glory. I arrive at that in this way. God made men for himself. And as I'm never tired of quoting, 
that answer to the first question in the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Assembly. The chief end of men is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, the natural men, the men who is still in sin, the man who is under the law, he does not live to glorify God. That's exactly what happened when man fell. From having lived to glorify God, he began to live for his own glory. The devil tempted him along that line, as you remember. Hath God said that you shan't do this? Ah, he said it because he knows that the moment you eat of this fruit, you will be as gods. And men believed it, accepted the temptation, began to live for his own glory. Therefore, the moment a man can say honestly that his supreme concern is to live to the glory of God. He can be absolutely certain that he is a Christian, that he is a child of God. It is something that is only true of the man who has been regenerate. Our Lord himself lived in this world entirely to glorify the Father. He says in his last prayer in John 17, Father, I have glorified thy name. It was his supreme desire. And as we are in him, this will become progressively our supreme desire. Well, but let's go on. There are many tests which we can apply. And if any one of these is true, it's enough in itself. But the more of them that are true of us, the more certain we can be. So I go on to my third, which is this. A man who is led by the Spirit of God always has a desire within him for a greater knowledge of God and a greater knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's no need to argue about this. It can be proved in this way. Our Lord, when promising the giving of the Spirit, said, He shall glorify me. And he always does. You see, the way to know whether the Spirit is in you and whether you're being led by the Spirit is not to ask whether you've had some visions or ecstasies or spoken in tongues or anything like that. No, no. This is the supreme test. Have you a great desire within you to know the Lord Jesus Christ? The Spirit always leads to him. The Spirit is sent to glorify him. And he, in turn, said that he was sent to glorify the Father. So I argue that when the Spirit is leading any person, that person desires to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to know God more and more and more. It's inevitable, and it's inevitable that it should be progressive. How do I know whether that is true? Well, there are ways in which I can test that. Where do I find this knowledge? Well, I find it in this book. I find it in the Old Testament and in the New. So anybody who's really searching for a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God spends a lot of time with this book. And particularly spends time with the book in order to arrive at this knowledge. Now, I'm emphasizing that for this reason. That there is a danger, isn't there? We are also mechanically minded that I may read my portion of Scripture day by day, but without my realizing it, my real motive is to, to read my passage. And I've read so much. I haven't really been seeking the Lord himself. I may even have been seeking a knowledge of the Scripture as such, that I may pass and examine scriptural knowledge. But that's not seeking the Lord. It isn't seeking God. 
What the Spirit does is to make us seek for the Lord, that I may know him, and God, that I may come into an intimacy of knowledge. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the, the, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Have you got a desire for knowing God? Can you really say that your greatest desire is to know God and the Lord Jesus Christ? If you can, you're a child of God. It not only shows itself by reading the scripture, it shows itself in prayer. You read the lives of the saints, you'll always find they spend time in prayer. And what were they praying about? Well, their supreme desire in prayer was that they might have this knowledge. Tell me, thou art mine, O Saviour. Grant me an assurance clear. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. O oh, love divine, how sweet thou art. When shall I find my willing heart all taken up by thee? That's it. This is the experience of the saints. If we know anything about this desire, the desire really to know, we will be seeking him and seeking the knowledge by reading the scripture, studying it, meditating upon it, and by prayer. Well, let me give you a fourth test. Anybody who is led by the Spirit is always concerned about his or her lack of love for God and for our Lord. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. That's the expression of a man led by the Spirit. Nothing but the Spirit leads to that. But remember, the Spirit always does lead to that. He invariably does that. Because, you see, as I say, he's sent to glorify the Lord. He's sent to glorify the Lord in salvation, the Father and the Son, and all that they've done. This great love of God toward us. Well, now, the question is, what is our love to God? What is our love to the Lord Jesus Christ? We say these things. We say we believe them. Yes, the proof, you see, that the Spirit is really leading and directing and guiding, and that we are not merely holding these things intellectually as, oh, that we are concerned about this and we are troubled about it. We feel that our hearts ought to be aflame with love, that there ought to be a great and a burning and a holy passion within us, that with the whole of our being, we should be loving God the Father and God the Son and filled with a desire to praise him and to magnify him as we ought. Now, I say it is an absolute proof of the working of the Spirit that we are concerned about the lack of this, that it troubles us, that it grieves us, that we are unhappy about it and that we do everything we can in order to remedy it. Well, let me go on to still more practical tests. Take this as a fifth test. Whoever is being led by the Spirit has an increasing awareness of sin within. There is no question about that. The Spirit is the Spirit of light. It is the Spirit of truth. He is the Holy Spirit. And as he leads us and guides us and directs us, it is always in this direction. And of course, the moment he begins to do it, we become aware of our real state within. 
Now, that happens in conviction of sin before conversion, but it doesn't stop there. It becomes still more intense afterwards, because the nearer you get to the light, the more you're aware of the darkness, the greater the perfection and the purity, the more is every defect shown up. The hotter the contest or the competition, the more perfect the contestants in whatever branch it is, the more does any little blemish appear obviously and stand out. So that as the Spirit increasingly leads us and guides us, we have this increasing awareness of sin within us. And therefore we are aware of an increasing mourning because of sin. Mourning because of sin within us. At finding that there are still these relics and remnants and manifestations of that which belongs to the old life. This is again an invariable testimony on the part of all the saints of the centuries. They have had this awful awareness of what they call the blackness of their own hearts and the plague of their own hearts. Seeing the remnants of sin, it has troubled them, it has worried them, and it has become something which increases as they advance and develop. Well, let me go on, still practical. The reaction of this man in the sixth place to the commission of sin is something quite new. It's a very good test, this. When the natural man does something that is wrong, he's annoyed with himself. He kicks himself metaphorically, but he never goes any further. He's annoyed that he's suffering because of what he's done. He may be annoyed that he's let down his own standard, failed to live up to his own code. It's all a manifestation of pride in some shape or form. But that isn't the reaction of the Christian. When the Christian falls into sin, he's aware of grief. And what's he grieved about? Well, he's aware that he has offended. Not the law of God now, but the love of God. See, this is a child's reaction. The child, if worthy of the name at all, is not so much afraid of punishment. Is not merely conscious of having broken some rule, some law. When the child becomes of an age to understand at all, he realizes that he has hurt, he's grieved, he's offended, he's offended against love. And there's nothing that can make a man feel more miserable than that. Well, now, that is what happens to the man who is led by the Spirit. In other words, if you want to work that out in detail, go to the second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 7. And there you'll find the apostle works it out in detail. He's showing the difference between what he calls the sorrow of this world and uh, what he calls a godly sorrow. He's in verse 9, Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorrow, sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that he might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And then he gives the proof of a godly sorrow. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. Well, how do you know that? Well, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now that's the reaction of a child. 
It's a relationship of love, not of law, and what one worries most about is that one has sinned against love and against grace and against mercy and against compassion. Well, let's go on to point number seven. The man who's led by the Spirit is one, therefore, who becomes increasingly sensitive to the very approach of sin and evil and to temptation. All these things are progressive, of course. And the more we are led by the Spirit, the more sensitive we become to the very approach or the very suggestion of sin and evil. We are more on guard. We've been heeding the warnings of the Scripture and the exhortations. Watch, take heed, always on the alert, standing, aware of what's happening. And, of course, because of all the things I've been saying, we become very sensitive to the very approach of sin and evil. We don't fall so directly, so immediately. We, we stand and we are more observant and more careful. But to put all this positively, as an eighth point, let me put it like this. Anyone who is led by the Spirit of God is aware in himself or herself of desires and breathings after righteousness and holiness. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you long to be holy? Do you long to be righteous? Can you say that honestly? That you are aware within yourself of breathings after righteousness and holiness. Not only that you stop committing certain sins or any one sin in particular. You know, it's a bad sign when we're interested in one sin only. We've got to be, I know, we shouldn't fall to any one sin. But it's always a defect that anybody's concentrating negatively on one sin only. The thing one really wants to know is this. Are we longing after positive holiness? Are we longing after righteousness? That's the test. People who are just interested in being delivered from some one thing that gets them down, they're very immature Christians. They're babes in Christ. Here's the test of the man who's being led on and on by the Spirit. He has positive desires and yearnings and breathings after holiness and after righteousness. Let me go on. If he is really led of the Spirit, he will do something about all this, and we've already seen in verse 13 what he does. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So the man who is led by the Spirit is a man who is actively mortifying the deeds of the body. What does that mean? Well, we already dealt with it before the vacation. Let me hurriedly remind you of something of what it does mean. It means this. That being aware that sin remains here, as it were, in his mortal body, and being aware of something of the subtleties of the devil, and the devil's desire to trap him and to reign in his mortal body, this man does everything he can to rid himself of all that. He is aware that certain things encourage sin. So he does his best to discourage them. For instance, this apostle says at the end of the 13th chapter of this epistle, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. 
Don't make any provision for it. If you are trying to mortify something, if you're trying to kill something, well, the best thing to do, the first and the obvious thing to do is don't give it any food. If you want to kill anything, starve it. Make no provision for it. Don't give it any solids, any liquids. Don't give it anything it can feed on. In other words, you test yourself like this, you see. What's your view of the outcome of this case that's being tried? Do you hope that this pornographic literature is going to be published and anybody can buy it whenever he wants? Are you looking forward to it? Longing for it? If so, you're making provision for the flesh. There's no question about that. It's unnecessary. It does harm. They can call it great literature if they like. I defy anybody to read such thing and not feel a little worse immediately. It's bound to do harm. It inflames. It's unnecessary. There's plenty of it already. Now that the man who mortifies the deeds of the body is a man who makes no provision. Indeed, he goes beyond that. He deliberately discourages certain elements within himself. Goes out of his way to do so. We have got through the Spirit who will lead us to do it, to mortify the deeds of the body. You watch your eyes, you watch your ears, you watch everything. You watch the company you turn in, the people you talk to. If you know that they're doing you harm, you avoid them, it doesn't matter who they are. That's the way to mortify the deeds of the body. You do everything you can to put an end to every influence you've ever known that tends to make you worse than you were or has a tarnishing and a polluting effect upon you. You would deliberately avoid it and keep clear of it. Those are some of the ways in which we mortify the deeds of the body. In other words, it's our whole relationship to what the New Testament calls the world. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world, says John. Do you remember how James put it? He says, the friendship of the world is enmity against God. Well, now, if you're led by the Spirit, you will not be a friend of the world. You cannot be, because that's enmity against God. And the Spirit always leads to God. The man who's led by the Spirit is a man who will realize that the world is always against him. In its evil, its outlook, its everything. So he avoids it, keeps clear of it. Love not the world, nor the things of the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. These are the things that do harm to the soul. Or listen to Peter putting it. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, and so on. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Well now then, there is another test. Are we taking action in the matter of mortifying the deeds of the body? And tenth and last, here is a test of whether we are being led by the Spirit or not. Are we manifesting the fruit of the Spirit? There it is in Galatians 5, where he contrasts the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. It follows as the night the day that if we are being led by the Spirit, we will be manifesting more and more the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Listen. Here is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There are nine tests for us to apply to ourselves. Love to God and to men. Joy 
The Spirit always leads to joy. The kingdom of God, we shall find Paul saying in chapter 14, verse 17 of this great epistle, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. What is it then? Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. How much joy is there in our lives, my friends? I mean this joy of the Holy Ghost. And then peace again. Not only peace within, but peace with others. Because we are at peace with God. What else? Well, long-suffering. Always a fruit of the Spirit. As God is patient with us, we become more and more patient with others as we are led by the Spirit. Gentleness. Yes, that's equally true. Our Lord himself was gentle. We read of him, the bruised reed, he will not break the smoking flax. He will not quench. Yes, that's always a characteristic that is not incompatible, remember, with righteous indignation. He was angry with the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. And he called them hypocrites in very plain language. But still, this gentleness is ever a characteristic of those who are led by the Spirit. Goodness explains itself. Faithfulness, faith, which means faithfulness here, it should be faithfulness rather than faith. Meekness. Now, this is a great characteristic always. The Holy Spirit always leads to humility and to meekness. It's obvious. If a man is aware of the plague of his own soul, if a man is aware of what still remains in him, he will of necessity be humble. He will be meek. It's a very wonderful test, this. There are people who claim to be led very much by the Spirit, but there's an absence of meekness, an absence of humility. There is a pride and a self-satisfaction. That's never a characteristic of anybody who is being led by the Spirit. Meekness and temperance, which means self-control, discipline. The Spirit is a spirit of order. Do you remember Paul putting that to Timothy? He says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, which means discipline, temperance, continence, self-control, not at the whim of every impulse or feeling, not at the mercy of anything that happens to meet us. No, no, there's a steadiness, there is a control, there is a temperate element in all our actions and conduct and behavior. Very well. There are some of the tests that I suggest to you from the scripture itself. And what we have to do, do you see, is to ask ourselves these questions. Ask yourself every one of the questions that I've put before you. I say that in a sense any one of them is enough, but the real question is, do we find something of every one of them in us? Are we more and more spiritually minded? Are we longing more and more for a knowledge of God? Are we really longing to know the Lord Jesus Christ better and to know his love? Is our love increasing as we go on? It should, you know. Every day, every year we live, we should be knowing him better and loving him more truly. Let me ask a still more practical question. And I would press it especially upon those in this congregation who have reached, let me say, their 60s or somewhere like that. 
Can you say that you're thinking more and more of the land to which you're going? The New Testament is a book, you know, that holds us face to face with it. Paul, in the midst of his tribulation, says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Yes, he says to the Colossians, set your affections on things above, not on things that are on the earth. What's a Christian? Well, says Paul to Titus, he's a man who's looking for the appearing of that great God and our Savior. I say, I'm applying this question to people age 60 or over, but you know, I shouldn't have said that. Those of you who've got the sense to be reading George Whitfield's journals will find that Whitfield in his 20s often longed to be there. Now, this isn't morbidity. This is Christianity. The more we are led by the Spirit, the more we shall be weaned from this old sinful world and shall know something about the desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Christian people, are we testing ourselves, I wonder, as we ought? This is what being led by the Spirit means. As he leads us, he will always be leading us in the direction of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to know them, to love them, to long to spend our eternity with them, to look for the great day when Christ will come and destroy all this evil and all his enemies and establish his glorious kingdom. This blessed hope means a great deal to the one who is led by the Spirit. And every one that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. I've just been expounding such texts to you. I've broken them up into details. Take any one of them, but take them all together. Are we being led by the Spirit? Are we spiritual people? Are we spiritually minded people? Are these the things which to us matter above everything else? Are these the things in which we delight and glory. Let every man examine himself, and God grant that we may be able to say yes. I'm not asking you, can you get 100% on every one of my questions? I'm simply saying this. I'm saying it to encourage you, my beloved friends. Do you come in at all into these things? If you do, well, you are a Christian. If you only just come into them, well, you're a very small infant, and you've only just been born. It's all right, but don't stay there. You must grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. We don't remain as infants. We grow on and become babes. We become boys, young men, middle-aged, old men. Is there an increasing maturity about us? There should be, and if we are led by the Spirit, there will be. No one should feel discouraged. If you just come into any one of these categories, it's all right. But the Spirit wants to lead you on. He is yearning for you with a jealous envy. He wants you to be someone in whom God, as it were, can take pride. Because the epistle to the Hebrews says, God is not ashamed to call them his people. That's the jealous envy of the, of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be such that God will be proud of us. And will say to the principalities and powers, they are my people. Look at them.
Well, may the Holy Spirit lead us on and on into these endless glories. Amen. O Lord, our God, we humbly thank Thee for this blessed truth that we have been considering together, that the Spirit that Thou hast caused to dwell in us is yearning even unto this jealous envy for our welfare and well-being, for our hopeless, for our holiness, and for our knowledge of this blessed hope, that he is yearning to bring us to that knowledge of thee and of thy dear Son, until we shall be lost in a sense of wonder, love, and of praise. O oh God, hear us then, we humbly pray, and reveal and manifest thyself unto us, and shed thy love abroad in our hearts by thy blessed Holy Spirit. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now throughout the remainder of this our short uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall see him as he is and be like him in glory. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.